This is the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agribusiness. If you're curious about innovations in ag tech, rural entrepreneurship, ag sustainability, or food security, this is the show for you. Let's get started. Hey there, thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich. It's my pleasure to bring you these stories every week of the farmers, the founders, the innovators, the investors, the people shaping the future of the agriculture industry. Is it still possible to get started in farming without either a bunch of money or being born into it? Well, it probably helps if you can find a good niche to get yourself established. For most of the past 35 years, Rich Collins has been the only commercial endive farmer in the United States. The chefs and hardcore foodies in the audience have probably heard of endive. I had not. It's technically a leafy green, but to me it looks like a white heart of romaine lettuce. However, it's a highly sought-after vegetable for its taste, texture, and appearance. You can look it up online, but I'll probably have to help you with the spelling. It's spelled E-N-D-I-V-E, like endive, not to be confused with curly endive, but they are both from chicory. Uh, Rich Collins grew up in Sacramento to parents who were not farmers. He's the youngest of six children, and he just always knew he wanted to farm. He started a backyard market garden at the age of 10 and expanded when his father bought a two-acre lot in the suburbs. But it was a dishwashing job that eventually led Rich to finding his farming niche, which became his primary focus from the early 1980s to when he sold his business in 2016. Here's Rich talking about how it all got started. But just before I went to UC Davis in the fall of 78, I um, discovered Belgian endive in May of 78 when I was working as a dishwasher in a French restaurant in Sacramento. The owner and chef at the restaurant had it for a very, very special VIP birthday banquet that this one evening on a Monday, normally the restaurant's closed on a Monday, and he hauled me in to wash dishes. And knowing that I wanted to be a farmer, he grew up on a farm in Illinois, so we used to talk ag and farming and, you know, wax poetic about how he grew up and I would dream about how I wanted to grow up. And anyways, he just happened to have this head of endive in his hand and he was going to braise it. And he said, you know, this is what you ought to grow. And I looked back at him and and I said, what is it? And he says, it's Belgian endive. I paid $4 a pound for it. And and I can remember to this day, my reaction was, really? <laughs> so that's how I got into the commercial farming business and, and notably the endive business. And, and for somebody who's never seen an endive, which I imagine is many people listening, describe it to us. Endive is the second growth of a chicory root. The, the first growth, of course, taking place in the field from seed to produce the root itself, which is like a carrot or a parsnip. But that root is then brought inside and grown again. And it, and it renders an endive, which is a small, you know, four or five inch long missile shaped bud on, on top of that root, quite, quite tight and dense. And it's blanched. So it's a white and yellowish color because it's grown in the virtual absence of light. And why is that? Why does it need to be grown in the absence of light? Is it because it's a root? Well, because it, it, um, it renders a beautiful vegetable. Um, there's not a lot of white or, or yellowish white vegetables out there. 
so it's it's not a green and it's it's not something that one wants to be green because it, it's grown to be blanched and the, and the flavor profile is probably a little more pleasant blanched than if it ter- did turn green upon exposure to light just because the chlorophyll would add a little more bitterness to to the product it's bitter by nature because it's a chicory and all the chicories have a bitter attribute to them whether it be endive or endive escarole radicchio tardivo um, any any of those chicories they're all bitter to a certain extent but that's you know part of being in the chicory family why do chefs love it so much? Why why is it worth the, the the price that they pay for it? Well, it's unique. It's unique in its color, in its texture, its appearance, its flavor, and it's very very versatile. And it's very healthy for you. But but it adds, you know, beautiful plate appeal for a chef whether they're using it as an appetizer or a salad by itself or an addition to a salad and it can be cooked. It's, it's quite versatile in that sense. They can do lots of different things with it, and they have a, a good chef will have very, very little shrink or waste when, when using Andi properly. And if, if we were to go to a restaurant, you know, a fine dining restaurant, what, what, what dishes would it most likely be in, and how would we recognize it? Most likely in America will, will be used in a salad, again, either by itself or in conjunction with other greens of some sort. But, you know, classic winter salad is endive with a comice or anjou pear, roasted walnuts and blue cheese. That's a classic winter, French winter salad. But you can mix it with anything. It's also a great appetizer. Each leaf is like a carrier for, you know, a multitude of different fillings, if you will. So you oftentimes do see it used either as a little finger food or, or, or a, an appetizer, you know, at a, at a party in a, or a festivity of some sort. But it can also be cooked. And does it, it sounds like it has more flavor and more texture than uh, like a, a romaine lettuce. Gobs more, yes. Chicory, there's there's just tons of fiber in it. It has, it's really, um, you know, quite quite a hefty vegetable in that sense. It's not 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 just a lot of water in it. Although it's you know it's obviously a, a quote unquote leafy green, but it's re- it's pretty dang, dang dense. So yeah, there's a lot to it. It's a good, it's a good vegetable. It's not only versatile in that sense, but it's also you know quite quite healthy too with the, all this fiber and potassium and minerals in it. Okay, so you, so you're in college. You've done some market gardening. You want to be a farmer. You're talking to your boss, who's a chef, and says you need to grow these things. They're called endives. What happens next? Well, I end up going to UC Davis and try to start learning about you know not only college life and agriculture but also Andive, and, and I find that there's just a dearth of information. There's nothing available. And, I mean, there was just very, very little information available on how to grow it. So I, um, how did this all come about? Well, in, in 1982, just before graduating from Davis, I tried growing it in 1979 commercially, didn't know what the heck I was doing, so that failed miserably on about two acres. So I kind of re- retrenched a little bit, did a little more research on my own at UC Davis with the help of some you know, various professors, reached out to some seed companies in Europe, but just could not find good information on how to grow Andive because there was none. So what I ended up doing was leaving Davis in 19, at the end of 81 
And I, I left for Europe and spent 10 months in Europe in 1982, not having graduated from UC Davis. I was still two quarters away from graduating. So much to my mother's consternation, I left school and went to Europe basically for a year. And, and while there, I traveled throughout Western Europe, you know, Holland, Belgium, and France primarily, because that's the, the heart of Andes country. And I worked on farms and visited seed companies and research institutes and, you know, vegetable auctions and worked with a lot of growers, just did anything I could with regards to Andive production and learned a lot, had, had quite, a, quite a time. So I, I, I hitchhiked around, I rode a bike, you know, I'd work on a farm for a week or two or, and then go to another place and then come back. And so I, I did all kinds of planting and, you know, cultivating and root growing and harvest and forcing of the roots and got a, a good broad introduction to the world of Andive in the part of the world where it had started about 150 years prior. So they were, they were pretty good at doing it after 150 years. I'm just curious because it seems like a big life change to make over, you know, a suggestion from a shelf, chef like, hey, you should learn to grow this. So, so I guess uh, two questions. The first one is, what convinced you that this was worth sort of derailing your life plan for? <laughs> well, I would say at that point, you know, I was 18 at the time and, and my life plan was to be a farmer. And and, and back then, you know, in the late 80s, very early 80s was pre-farm crisis days, which meant, which really was, and, and, and agriculture was booming back then. As, as I recall, for the most part, you know, the farm crisis hit pretty hard, I think in the, it was in the mid 80s or the late 80s. So not being from a farm family, people were basically telling me that it was impossible to start a career in, in farming, you know, in agriculture. And I just didn't want to accept that. So I have no idea why that one mentioned that night in the restaurant as I was washing dishes. And he, when he said, this is what you ought to grow. It just, as I turned around, it just clicked in my head and off I went, you know, is that just divine providence or happenstance or just dumb luck? Probably a combination of all. But yeah, it, it is funny. That's the only time I'd ever seen it. Not only that, that's the only time he ever had it in the restaurant because it was a VIP birthday banquet. And Andy was pretty special stuff. So I was a dishwasher there for many, many, many months, if not you know a year. It was, it was a great job, great place to work as a high schooler. And um, he never had Andy in it on the menu in the restaurant except that one night. And I happened to be washing dishes and he happened to think to tell me that. And I happened to turn around and I said, really? <laughs> Four dollars a pound? I'll grow it. So that was, it just, I, I don't, I can't explain it, but it just clicked in my mind. And yeah, and then off I went in a, you know, somewhat tenacious manner to, to figure it out. Yeah. And I, I know you said you, you've retired from the Ondive business now, but how long were you a commercial grower of Ondives? I grew it commercially from 1983 through 2016. So 33 years, if my math is right. Incredible. Did, did you grow other things as well, or was Ondives really the, the, the primary revenue source? Oh, Ondive was the primary revenue source. We did eventually diversify. I ended up garnering some European partners 
in the business from France and Spain, and they were heavily involved in the nursery business for uh, asparagus plants and strawberry plants. So we grew some nursery for those two crops. We grew some radicchio. We grew some processing herbs for a sister company as part of our farming you know, enterprise. But, but Endive was always the, the primary focus because it's, it's, you know, it's obviously a rather unique process. It takes some pretty specialized investment to, to make it work on a large commercial year-round scale. And then it, it also took a lot of marketing effort to, to sell, you know, as, as our production increased, because, you know, people were asking the same question, you know, what is it? You know, what do I do with it? How do I get it? All those things. So we were constantly dealing with those, those questions. I imagine after 33 years, you probably had the production process, you know, pretty well dialed in. Can you walk us through sort of step by step? Once you had it dialed in, what is the process of growing on Deves? Yeah, we knew what we were doing after 33 years, although hopefully you can appreciate it. It's such a nuanced crop and there's so many links on the chain. Anytime you have a weak link, things can fall apart pretty quick. But in in a nutshell, one sows a chicory seed in the spring, and we bought all of our seed from European breeders. That seed is a very small lettuce-sized seed, so it's sown the classic vegetable crop. It takes about five months in the field to produce a mature root, the root being like the size of a large carrot or a parsnip. That is to say, you know, about inch, inch and a half in diameter at the top. Chicory plant itself produces a canopy, looks like Swiss chard, or sugar beets, maybe, you know, maybe 18 to 20 inches in height. But from the field, our, our objective is is just the root, about six inches of that tap root with the bud on top. So we would go through and mow down that, that vegetative canopy and then dig up the, the chicory roots themselves at, a, at about six inches in depth, maybe seven. And But it's a root that grows down two or three feet. We just want that bigger upper portion. And with the bud on top, because it's that bud that becomes the ondies, the bud on top of the root. So that that root comes out of the field and goes into cold storage for anywhere from two to 52 weeks. And, and in cold storage, it is not only preserved for use when we want it, but it's also vernalized. You know, that cold cold period signals the plant to to grow again upon exposure to a higher temperature, which happens when we take the root out of cold storage and put it into a what we call forcing room, which is very similar to a mushroom type facility in that it's dark, humid, mild temperatures with some circulating air. But but it's not sterile like a like a mushroom facility. But upon coming out of cold storage and then being subjected to those warmer temperatures, the plant is given a signal to start growing again. So it's coming out of dormancy, basically. But instead of being outside, like it naturally would be in its natural life cycle as a, as a biennial, you know, going from seed to seed over the course of two years, it's growing now for the second time, not outside with daily fluctuations of temperature and light, but inside in the dark under consistently mild temperatures with high humidity and all that. So we control those conditions. So quote unquote control, you know, I put air quotes on that because even though that room was under our control in an environment where we're kind of dictating the timeline, 
it's still a farm and biology and mother nature weave its way through it and, and, and many, many different aspects, good and bad. So, but in response to those conditions, the root grows again, that bud on top of the root starts to grow. These are in trays of water with water in them. So they're, they're, they're sending out feeder roots from the bottom of that tap root, supplying the growth of the bud on top. And it takes about three weeks for that bud to produce a endive of commercial size. That's the finished product that we then harvest. I mean, we break it off, trim it and pack it. The root gets discarded at that point for animal feed because there's only one apical bud on each chicory root. And that's the only bud that can produce a, an endive. So when it's discarded, we then go back to cold storage and take another root out and put it in that same tray, which had been growing for three weeks with that crop, and we grow it again. So we're always producing endive in the sense of, you know, it's, we used to say 53 weeks out of the year, we had the product because we, we grew enough roots and had a big enough inventory in cold storage where we could pull some out every day and and grow some and, and keep that whole cycle going. So we could keep our, our market supply, but we also kept our labor force, you know, busy year round. So it, it's, it's a very unique process, you know, growing it twice, second time in the dark, but it works, although it's not easy. Yeah, it doesn't sound easy. How much total time between that, putting that seed in the ground to actually delivering it to your customer? Well, a minimum of, of, of basically five months in the field, then two weeks in cold storage, and then three weeks in the grow room. So you're basically, you're talking a little over six months from sowing that seed to having a product that one could sell. Yeah, and then I imagine you, you grow all of those roots in the field, and then you grow enough to last you to the next season. Correct. And, and who are your customers? Were you selling it to high-end restaurants directly, or how did that part work? Initially, we were, you know, back in the early 80s, I, I schlepped a lot of endive around to, to various restaurants, pr- primarily in the Bay Area of California, you know, in Northern California. You know, it, keep in mind, that was in the early to mid 80s when kind of the restaurant industry was just starting to change and become a little more progressive and a little more dynamic, a little more open to new products. Although endive had been around for decades and decades and decades, we kind of hit that at the right time. And then eventually we got big enough, you know, to deal with, of course, wholesalers. And then we started shipping down to LA and eventually throughout the U.S. We didn't have a lot of direct restaurant sales unless a restaurant reached out to us. And again, this would primarily in Northern California. We didn't turn them away. We, we, we would suggest maybe they go through a distributor. It might be easier, but some of them wanted to purchase directly from the, the grower. And that, that was fine with us. Because it was, you know, close and and of relatively high value that justified shipping at UPS. So yeah, we shipped, you know, some throughout the business the whole period. We we always shipped some UPS out to various restaurants because it was it was important for us to make it easy for them to get it, whether it be direct or via distributor. We would we would do whatever it took so they'd have it on their menu so that they could expose their customers to it. Thinking back to when you started out and then, you know, the state of of agriculture today, do you think it's easier or harder, the same for for someone new like you were to get into it and find a niche like this? Boy, that is a good question. And I don't don't, I don't know. I guess being older now and having done it, um, I guess the natural tendency would be to say, oh, it must be easier now. But I don't know that it is, you know, just because of perhaps other of competition and or 
food safety regulations or just the cost of doing business. I, I don't know. But but I would also say, you know, back what, what drove me to Europe basically was, you know, an airplane ticket was the substitute for the World Wide Web back then. There was no information available back in the late 70s, early 80s when I started doing it. And so I had to go to Europe to learn firsthand. So with the, with the web now, I don't do social media, but with the web, the, my gosh, I heard a chef, actually a French chef called the web, the, the death of distance. And I mean, it's true. I mean, you can access so much information now, maybe too much. You know, in ag, it's, it's not just having a piece of paper in front of you, you know, or some report. You got to do it as well. But just access to information is easier. I don't know what the marketplace is like anymore with regards to startups, you know, and, and, and venturing out and, and, and knocking on the, the, sh- the door of a chef or, or how, how, how does that work necessarily? My sense is it might be a little bit easier because there's just a, perhaps a little bit more demand or interest on the, the purchasing end of the spectrum. You know, that's to say smaller restaurants and, and cooperatives and, you know, whatever. Back, back, back in the late 70s, early 80s, there were not a lot of places to knock on the doors. I think there are more now. There's more interest at that end. Yeah, that makes sense. What about, did you, did you ultimately sell the business to retire? Yeah, we um, we sold the business to the grandson of our original French partner. So it's he, he's younger than me, and it was a a time for for us to to think about you know moving on, and, and it worked out. He was looking for an opportunity here in California. So this was back. This was five years ago. So it worked out that we just were able to to, to sell our interest to to him, and it's kind of quote unquote still in the family. And it made sense for us, you know. After after 33 years, I, I had done enough, and it, and it was time time for me to move on. And and I still farm here at home, so I'm I'm still farming. I'm just farming different stuff. But I, I was I was pleased with the, the the course of history, having run that 33 years. And I just we had the opportunity to exit gracefully, and and we did. It, it, I imagine when you started, indoor agriculture was not nearly the, the buzzword it is now. You were kind of, you know, er, early in the indoor agriculture field. Did you notice as indoor agriculture started gaining in popularity, is there more competition for, for the endive market? No. In, in fact, not only were we the only growers in America, we still are. The company still is the only grower. It's that hard to grow. I mean, day in and day out to produce good quality Keep in mind, we were we were competing against export quality out of that industry in Europe that had been around for 150 years, and the, and after 150 years, they were really good at it, and and I was able to learn from some of those growers. But it it did take us 10 years to kind of get our feet underneath us here in, here in California in producing endive. Because it's a, you know, I, I hopefully you can appreciate it. it's it's a rather long, drawn out process with plenty of opportunity to make mistakes or have something go wrong, and once that happens, you kind of, for, to a large extent, you got to wait till next year to to rectify that. So there have been other entities that have popped up over the years that we're going to grow on these, but they only last a year or two or three, and by that then they got frustrated. Or they ran out of money, or, or whatever, and they all moved on. So, so there, there has not. We always thought there would be a competitor, 
it's a relatively small market too, and it takes a lot of effort to market it into that relatively small market. So it wasn't a big, big attractive potential, you know, endeavor for others. And, And then we eventually got good at it and we've had a pretty good, strong position in it too. So, but ironically enough, yeah, it's, it's hasn't garnered that type of interest and, and today, California Andy Farms is, is still the only commercial grower in, in the United States, at least that I know of. Yeah. It sounds like the labor, I mean, it'd be very hard to automate the, these processes, it, it sounds like to me. Is the, the labor the biggest cost? Yes. Well, one of. It, and I got to admit that those those figures aren't rolling through my head like they used to. But yeah, we had, you know, we had about 75 year-round employees. You know, cold storage and roots are a big cost too, but but labor is because it's day in and day out, and and it is not an easy process to automate. There's a lot of handwork involved and a, and a lot of qualitative decisions made with the people doing that handwork. So, yeah, it's a pretty labor intensive process, and that that's one of the reasons why it's an expensive product. And what's keeping you busy in retirement here? I am a producer of hybrid asparagus seed on a contractual basis. So I don't own the genetics and I don't, I don't have to do the marketing and the sales. I, I just am, am the grower of the seed. And it's a, another very challenging crop to produce well for almost 10 years now. Started relatively small about 10 years ago, but so it's been a, it's been a real, real interesting enterprise to uh, kind of get established here and, and, and build up and keep that going. But again, I don't, I don't have any of the marketing or sales challenges with that enterprise like I did with the Andes, which suits me just fine. I just want to be a farmer. And then, and and also I I do a lot of work in this part of the world, that is to say the Sacramento Valley advocating for better soil stewardship and a higher respect for what we call the water cycle out here, just to to get our, our, our grounds, our lands into, into better shape. And a little more resilient, a little more productive and efficient. And, and along those lines, I've been talking to a lot of Midwest farmers about kind of reducing tillage and either strip till or no till. I mean, in California yep. crops, is that is that possible? I, I, and I know California crops are talking three hundred different crops, so you got three hundred, you know, different situations. But you know, do you think we have a long way we can do? We can go to reduce tillage in California for some of the fruit and vegetable nut crops. Absolutely, and and we're working on it. We being groups that I'm involved in or some, you know, different industry players or university folks. Yes, it's absolutely possible. I I think to a certain extent, we've somewhat convinced ourselves that it's not possible. You know, your reference to 300 crops. Well, Ondeeb is one of those crops. But you know what? There's only 300 acres of Ondeeb in California. And watercress is another crop, or chervil is another crop, or tarragon, or or whatever you know. But some of those crops only occupy, you know, 50 to 100 acres, or 300 or 1,000 acres. But we've also got you know quarter million acres of processing tomatoes and 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 all these orchards that are going in, you know, with almonds and walnuts and pistachios. There's a huge, huge window of opportunity for us to do those in a much more rational manner with respect to soil and water resources. So, but it's not going to be easy. And I'd say the Midwest is, you know, you, you, you've talked to these folks, they're, they're way ahead of us. Although, you know, they have a limited, you know, it's a lot of corn and beans, right? And they've been doing it now for a generation and, and they're getting good at it. So we're somewhat behind in that sense. You know, in California, we always like to think we're way ahead of everybody. 
But um, in this sense, I'd say we're behind. And we got to figure it out because it's the right thing to do. And it's a better way to do it for a whole bunch of reasons. But it's change. So that's, that's going to take a while. And I com- completely understand that. And I appreciate it. And it's a little bit frustrating, but we have to do it because there's just so much at stake. And, and our soil resources out here, and when I say here, I'm talking about Sacramento Valley or Northern California, they're beat up after three generations of intensive tillage. They're dead and beleaguered. But if anything I've learned is soil responds to care. And you give it some attention and, and treat it properly, and all of a sudden, biology bounces back, and dynamics change, and crop production changes, and yields change, and nutrient density changes, and that's the beauty of, you know, working with nature, if you will, is that she responds. And, and I've seen it here on our farm, you know, in this beautiful, beautiful agricultural region where we could do much better. And hopefully we will. I think the younger generation is going to see that through. But it's not easy. I, I get it. It's, you know, it's change and there's a lot of investment in this current system and gosh. But we have a lot of work to do to, to, to do better. Absolutely. Well, I, you and I, I hope, can continue on that conversation some more at a, at a later date. One just real quick question that I that popped into my mind earlier, but I didn't ask you because my mind went elsewhere is, so asparagus is a perennial crop. So how many years of seed can you harvest from, from, from asparagus? Well, it, it should have about a 20-year life, more or less. You know, that it might be... That might be a biological limit, but there, there may be also a market limit, you know, for the longevity of a variety. But I mean, if you take care of it, which we do, asparagus plantings can last a long time. So it's, it's, a, it's a longer term crop. It's more like a vineyard or an orchard in that sense. Very interesting. Rich, I can't thank you enough for making this happen. This has been fascinating on a number of levels. And like I said, with your interest in retirement on, on kind of soil and, and water resources, I think you and I should, should keep in touch. Okay, well, thanks for reaching out, and I appreciate it. Thank you for your patience. (laughs) Thank you again to Rich Collins for being on the show, and special thanks to my friend Jeremy Turner for the guest recommendation there. I've I've really enjoyed hearing from entrepreneurial farmers uh, like Rich and Shay Myers a couple months ago. I really think if you want to learn about agriculture, there's still no better way than sitting down with someone who's been farming for several years. So. Really appreciated that interview. Thanks so much to you for your time and your attention. I don't take it for granted. We'll be back next week with another Ag Innovator. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast. If you like what you heard here today, I'd love to connect with you further. Go over to futureofag.com. That's futureofag.com. And let me know a good email address for you so we can keep in touch. Also, you'll be able to check out a ton of bonus content on the blog while you're there. Otherwise, make sure you're subscribed to the show so you can catch another fascinating ag innovator here next week. Music